we need a real pandemic project. We want to reopen with an artist who has used the pandemic as a time, of course, to explore their creativity, but also um, to really make sense of this tumultuous year that we've all had. UC Davis's Fine Arts Museum is reopening to the public after being closed for more than a year because of the pandemic. The Jan Schrem and Maria Minetti Schrem Museum of Art is reopening on June 3rd and will be following campus COVID-19 protocols. This is The Backdrop, a UC Davis podcast exploring the world of ideas. I'm Satirius Johnson. Here to talk about the museum's new exhibitions, as well as how the museum has been weathering the pandemic, is the museum's founding director, Rachel Teagle. Welcome to The Backdrop, Rachel. Pleasure to be here. You must be very excited to be reopening finally. Oh my gosh, I can't even tell you how much joy, anticipation, and relief it is to know we're going to open soon. (laughs) Well, before we get to the exhibitions, what has the past year been like at the museum? I mean, the building has been closed to the public, but you've had a busy year. We have indeed. The museum team has really found a lot of silver linings in COVID. We have done, well, we've created and um, pursued work on an anti-racism action plan. We dug deep into the collection to really understand who is in our collection. Um, We have all kinds of great plans afoot, but none of it compares to being with people in our galleries. Right, right. So, I mean, you know, the pandemic, of course, has been horrible, but you have been able to use this time, this downtime, so to speak, to kind of reassess inclusion and diversity in the museum's operations, whether that goes to the collection or the staffing? What are the, diff- all, what are the different aspects of diversity, inclusion, and equity that you've been able to spend the time on this year? Thank you for asking about this, Satirius, because it's really central to our future. We have a plan that addresses every area of museum operations. So we've done everything from We did a huge research project last summer trying to diversify our vendors. It is very hard to find women-owned and Black-owned purveyors of hanging hardware, for example. Mm. If anybody out there listening can point us towards some, we want to hear about those. Mm -hmm. Um, But probably the most important is the museum opened um, so quickly that we did not have the time to really dig into 50 years of collections that had been assembled, some 5,000 objects. And starting last fall, moving into the winter, we did far beyond an inventory. We dug in to really understand not just what the object is, but who made it, where are they from, what was their background, all with an eye towards being able to be really clear about what is what is the future of diversity at our museum. Mm-hmm. And this is important for museums everywhere to be thinking about because? Well, the statistics are quite terrible. I'm happy to say that the Minetti Shrem Museum is doing better, but a major report published in 2019 said 85% of artists on view at U.S. museums were male and white. And that is just, of course, not anywhere near reflective (laughs) of our society. Exactly. And we can do better. Right, right. Now, I know that the pandemic has been really tough on many cultural institutions. 
Um, museums in particular have had their own kind of, you know, subset of challenges. What are some of the challenges that you have faced at the museum there that the pandemic has just thrown in your way that you've had to figure out how to get around? Well, Satiris, it starts at the most basic level. Um, imagine my team hanging a show. One of the old uh, ways of doing business was you would never touch a painting without having two pairs of hands on it. It is a precious object that we are entrusted to preserve forever. So you'd never take the chance of someone actually tripping or falling. You got to have a backup in place. Mm-hmm. So we had to really fundamentally rethink um, how we do our work from the level of we installed a Wayne Tebow exhibition without any institutional loans because all museums in the U.S. were closed. So you couldn't get artworks from other museums because everything was closed. So you just basically had to work around that. Exactly. We re-engineered the whole show. We used a lot more Tebows out of local collections And of course, we have the wonderful asset of the Tebow family who were remarkably generous in pulling works out of storage for us. And then as far as like staffing the museum, you know, you don't charge admission. So as far as running a cultural institution that relies on visitor income, you didn't have to worry too much about that. But as far as running the museum, making sure that everything is going to be able to reopen when things got better. I mean, how did you deal with that? Well, my hands down biggest challenge this past year, and also the achievement of which I am most proud, no one on my team got sick. No one on my team lost their job. That's great. And unfortunately, um, the percentage of U.S. US museums that laid off staff, um, it's more than half. Mm. So very proud that, um, again, and you're exactly right, it's because we're not reliant on an admissions-based model. We are reliant on our donors, and we were very lucky. We had a banner year. Our donors stepped up because they fundamentally believe in free access to the arts at a public university. That's really great. Okay, so let's now turn to the exhibitions that uh, you're going to be opening the muse- reopening the museum with. And I believe the main one is a Wayne Tebow exhibition. It's called A Wayne Tebow Influencer, A New Generation. What is that about? Well, November 2020, Wayne Tebow turned 100. And what on earth do you do for somebody on their 100th birthday? <laughs> that, that like, what on earth could you possibly give them? And I'm pretty pleased with our solution, Soterius. We decided instead of looking back at Wayne Tebow's first 100 years, We were going to look forward to the next hundred years of his ongoing impact on the arts. And we have an exhibition with 19 artists who are profoundly influenced by what Wayne Tebow has achieved in his career. And that includes both artists who are his students, some even currently, as well as artists who we have two artists who never even met Wayne Tebow, hmm. but you can see very clearly in their work that they owe him a huge debt of gratitude. Well, for those who are not familiar with Tebow, can you give us a little bit of background and maybe, you know, talk about what his art looks like? Absolutely. Wayne Tebow taught painting at UC Davis for more than 40 years. And we say more than 40 years because he's such a committed teacher that he came back and kept teaching long after he was formally (laughs) retired. Um, He's still teaching today. Several of the artists in our exhibition, before they brought the paintings to our show, drove by Wayne's studio to get his feedback. At 100 years old. That's amazing. At 100 years old. Still (laughs) very, very active. 
Um, so his profound commitment to teaching really shapes how he thinks about the act of painting. And we can talk a little bit about that. I think most people, their mental image of a Wayne Thiebaud painting is of a piece of cake or perhaps a slice of pie. Um, just last August, one of his gorgeous ice cream cones graced the cover of The New Yorker. Those are kind of his iconic images. Right. Would he be considered part of the funk movement as the other kind of founding faculty of the art department were? You know, Wayne was the senior statesman of the founding faculty even back then, and I think he would issue the title of funk just as he did not think of himself as a pop artist, even mm -hmm. though he came up with the pop artists in New York. Instead, he prefers to think of his work as connecting to what he describes as the grand tradition. That is the whole trajectory of modernist painting dating back to the likes of Cezanne and Manet. When I look at his work, I, I, I see it as very colorful. Is that something that, I mean, how would you describe his work to someone who's never seen it? Well, he is a painter who is primarily concerned with the effects of color and light. And in fact, one of the reasons why Arnold Kemp was so excited to show his black paintings next to a Wayne Thiebaud exhibition is he said to us, there is no painter in the United States who takes color more seriously than hmm. Wayne Thiebaud. Right. Arnold Kemp is uh, one of the other exhibitions that you're going to have when you reopen um, in June. But before we move on to him, why is Wayne Thiebaud considered so important um, in the art world? He is an iconoclast and he his recognition is coming very late in his career. He is an artist who um, showed for the first time in New York in the very early 1960s with uh, no lesser than Andy Warhol before he was a household name. And Wayne refused to participate in trendy market-driven enterprises. He is committed to the principles of painting, to understanding the specificity of his medium. And while some people think of that as a traditionalist approach, others can see that, in fact, um, it is a lifelong commitment to technique that has allowed him to achieve really remarkable paintings that um, really can evoke all kinds of emotions. I think he's really only now getting his credit for work that can be moody and brooding, as well as delightful and celebratory. Mm. Now, in addition to the, the uh, influencer exhibition, you have a uh, kind of a, a side exhibition called uh, Wayne Thiebaud Working Proofs, which is a collection of prints. Can you talk about that a little bit? What is that all about? Well, as much as Wayne is committed to painting, he has pursued printmaking throughout his entire career. And we are so lucky at the Minetti Shrem Museum. We have a young curator, Quintana Heathman, who just finished her PhD in 18th century Japanese printmaking. <laughs> and you would never expect that contemporary art um, would be her thing. But we gave her the assignment last summer to start digging through our collection of Wayne Thiebaud prints. Most of them he's given to us, to the university. And Quintana started to realize that there were all kinds of intriguing crossovers between the work that Thiebaud does 
that's inspired by very traditional Japanese printmaking techniques. So it is a capsule show. It is quite small, but it is really lovely. And for anyone who's interested in printmaking, I think you'll be surprised by what you see. And these are working proofs. So these are kind of like rough drafts of what would become later works. Well, what's particularly lovely is that you can see Wayne's imprint on the prints. If you'll if you'll go with <laughs> me a little bit with that metaphor, um, the way printing works is you you work on the plate. Depends on what exact type of print you're making, but let's say you work on the plate, and then the printer has to pull the first print. And they give that first print to the artist to make notes. And that's a working proof. And of course, that's what the artist had available to give to us, his working proofs from all these years of working with different printers. Right. So, so the final products would actually be prints or would they possibly be an artwork that would end up in a uh, in his final version as like a, a, in a different medium, like a painting or something like that? Well, Wayne is so committed to returning to the same iconography to explore nuances in the distinction between drawing and printmaking and painting. One of the prints in the show is of a gumball machine, but of course you could find a gumball in, throughout Wayne's career in many different media. Um, the ultimate work of art and working proof would be another print, but the imagery you can find across all media. Okay, so now uh, one of the other exhibitions is, as you mentioned, uh, Arnold Joseph Kemp. Uh, it's a show called I Would Survive, I Could Survive, I Should Survive. Um, so who is Arnold Kemp and what drew you to his work uh, to feature at the museum? Arnold Joseph Kemp is currently uh, the Dean of Graduate Studies at the Art Institute of Chicago, but he came up in the Bay Area. In fact, he was a curator at the Yerba Buena, a founding curator at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco. So he has a real community of people in California. But the way he came to us is through our guest curator, a UC Davis grad, Sampada Aranque. We asked Sampada, we said, Sampada, we need, um, we need a real pandemic project. We want to reopen with an artist who has used the pandemic as a time of course, to explore their creativity, but also um, to really make sense of this tumultuous year that we've all had. And without missing a beat, Sampada said, I know exactly the artist. And hmm. in fact, she texted me a photograph that Arnold had just texted her. I think this was back in the fall, maybe September. He had sat down in the studio last September morning and had written the text I would survive, I could survive, I should survive. And um, the whole body of work that you'll see on view at our museum is exploring ideas of self-making and how even when you're alone in the studio in the midst of a pandemic, you can find meaning um, because ultimately self-making is the most important project any mm. one of us ever undertakes. Right. What are the media that he works in? Well, he's a painter. Um, two gorgeous all-black self-portraits. They're not at all what you would expect. They're not figurative. They're very abstract. And then a fantastic wall of photographs called Possible Bibliography and a sculpture, all of them forms of personal self-portraiture. I did see online the uh, the installation of the photographs, which is striking. It's how many are there? There there must be dozens. 
52. 52, and they are they take up an entire wall, it seems, and they're they're gorgeous. Even just, like from a distance, they're gorgeous, and then up close, they they are really interesting. Can you describe for listeners what um, that piece is about and and what it looks like? In each of the 52 photographs, you see Arnold's hands cradling a book that's been important to the formation of his identity. They are very personal images. I'm always surprised by looking at them that somehow the tattered edges of a paperback, for example, becomes this beautiful marker of his devotion to this book. Um, And of course, his hands, each with a different gesture, really create this visual sense of touch that's quite unusual in photography. Mm -hmm. Is this one of his first major exhibitions, um, maybe outside of Yerba Buena, or has he had other big shows elsewhere across the country? Well, like many artists of African-American descent, he has not received his due. He shows regularly. In fact, while this exhibition has been up at our museum, but not yet open to the public, he had a show, a gallery show in L.A., um, but not yet a major museum show. So we're hoping this exhibition might um, bring more attention to an artist we believe is is really important. And then the final installation is an Andrea Bowers neon installation called Education Should Be Free. Can you describe what that looks like and 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 who Andrea Bowers is? Absolutely. So that piece is already on view. It's a beautiful neon sign broadcasting from our lobby. So anybody who's stopping by the Mandavi Center to take their Healthy Davis Together test has probably already seen it. You can see (laughs) it clearly from across the street. Andrea Bowers is an LA-based artist who's actually in our Wayne Tebow Influencer exhibition. She um, very much wears on her sleeve how much she learned about drawing by looking at Wayne Tebow drawings. But she is an artist who first and foremost um, considers herself a political activist. And she has a whole body of work where she broadcasts ideas to the public. That is what our provocative education should be free is attempting to do. Of course, it will be so much more effective next year when everybody's back on campus. But Andrea's work the point of it is to introduce big ideas and to promote conversation. We've already had two different classes work all over Zoom with the artist <laughs> on interpreting this sculpture about things like education should be free of patriarchy, education should be free of ableism, education should be free of racism. And in the fall, this will be up for all of next year. Um, We are looking forward to having many more classes engage with this provocative neon sign. I was able to get a sneak peek at some of the artworks online. Um, During this last year, have you been able to engage the public through the museum's website and other online venues? Were you able to do that at all? Well, I'm so proud of my team who made a really quick pivot to online programming. We have had so, we've experimented with so many different kinds of online programs. And while I will be very happy to say goodbye to what I think of as the very inadequate effort to look at works of art online, 
perhaps one of the things that we're going to hold on to is Zoom has proven to be a fantastic way to get more artists' voices into our museum. Just this last Friday, we hosted a conversation between Wayne Tebow and Lois Dodd. Lois was um, in Maine and Wayne in his studio in Sacramento. It's quite literally the type of program we could never, we could have never gotten those two artists to travel to be together um, that we hope in the coming year we're going to continue to do more of. Um, but as when it comes to looking at works of art, we want you all to come into the museum and experience them in person. Right. That makes sense. I mean, you want to see it, see it up close and in person. And um, for people who want to visit, want to plan their visit, uh, what are the COVID protocols that uh, the museum is undertaking and uh, what other details should people know? Well, we're going to ask everybody to sign up in advance. It's still free. We just want you to register for your time slot. We are limiting attendance. We are inviting people to come. You'll be given a two-hour block of time in between each of those two-hour blocks. We're going to sanitize. We're going to clean. We're asking everybody to wear their mask. We anticipate that these restrictions are going to get looser and looser as the summer goes on. But of course, we're taking great care, uh, especially uh, when we reopen on June 3rd. That's great. Well, you And how many days a week are you open? So we do have more limited hours, Thursday, Friday, Saturday through the summer. So you'll go online to reserve your slot of when you want to come in and visit us. All right. Well, I know a lot of people are really excited to get back out to cultural venues, including the Minetti Shrem Museum. So thanks so much for coming on today, Rachel. It is my pleasure. And I have to tell you, Soterius, it has been a joy. We've had a few people come in for a sneak peek and across the board, all of them have explained. It's so good to see art in person. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure everyone is just itching to get back out and to do the things they love. So this is really great that the museum is uh, opening up again. We are. We are really honored. Thank you. Rachel Teagle is founding director of the Jan Schrem and Maria Manetti Schrem Museum of Art. Find out more about the museum on our website, ucdavis.edu slash the-backdrop-podcast. You can listen to The Backdrop on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and leave a review. And if you like this podcast, check out our other UC Davis podcast, Unfold. It breaks down complicated problems and unfolds curiosity-driven research. Join public radio veteran and host Amy Quinton and co-host Kat Curlin for Unfold. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Soterius Johnson, and this is The Backdrop, a UC Davis podcast exploring the world of ideas.